Welcome to Cornerstone Reformed Baptist Church. Thank you for using and sharing our resources. What you're about to hear is God's Word from one of our teaching elders. We trust that God's Word will inspire, instruct, and bless you. For further teachings or information on our ministry, please visit us on our website at cornerstonerbc.com. That's cornerstonerbc.com. Uh, bring the exposition of God's Word here at Cornerstone Reform Baptist Church. So I'm going to invite you to turn with me to Colossians chapter 1. We're going to read, for, we're going to study verse 15 to 19, but our reading will be a little bit broader. I like to read more than I need because God's Word, firstly, is amazing, life-changing, eternal, glorious. And, and secondly, I, I like the context to be really clear because when I teach a passage of Scripture, I like to delve into the, into the minutiae, so to speak, of that passage but I don't want the kind of the bird's eye view to be lost as we think about how all of this ties together in the harmonious revelation of God's good grace. Now, speaking of God's grace, uh, and certainly we all are in desperate need of more and more of God's grace, I'm um, going to start reading at verse 9, and by God's grace, we're going to understand how God would speak to us. But as I said, just so you're aware, our key text will be verse 15 through to 19 of Colossians chapter 1. But I'm going to pick it up here in Colossians 1 verse 9. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints of light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Verse 15, he, speaking of Christ still, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all Creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminence. For in him, verse 19, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Amen. Now the stability of our salvation, which really is kind of a big theme for Paul here, in Colossians chapter 1, and the steadfast assurance that we are called to enjoy will always remain as objective truths. Now, I've been in 
pastoral ministry now in one shape, form or another for, I don't know, well over 20 years at least. I've been preaching for about 25 years and been doing some kind of pastoral ministry for at least two decades. Let's just round it off at that. And I have to confess to you today that the number one pastoral concern that continually is just repeatedly cropping its head in my life, my pastoral ministry, serving churches all across the world is Christians struggling with a sense of their assurance, having a, having a true spirit-born sense that they are in Christ, that their sins are forgiven, and that the gospel is their inheritance. And, and part of the challenge is, and I, I think we can, we can simplify this, we can summarize this, is that there are a lot of Christians that are, that are looking for assurance, they're looking for, for that that great evidence, that, that, that really indisputable reality of their assurance, but unfortunately they're looking for it inside themselves. They're, they're looking in themselves. They're trying to find something that proves to them beyond any reasonable doubt, and there's a problem with that. I'm not saying that the evidence of you being saved isn't manifested inside you. There, there is a change of heart. This is what regeneration and conversion are. What I'm saying is that your view of yourself is always in some way, form, skewed. When we look at ourselves, our view is skewed because we can't be objective. When we look at ourselves, our sight is poor. It's hard to look inward and understand all of the, the machinations of a fallen human heart. Doesn't the Bible say that? The heart is wicked above all else. Who can understand it? Who? And thirdly, our image is blurred. We simply don't have the vantage point, even the most obvious things to us, or what, let me rephrase, the things that should be most obvious to us are sometimes not, right? Like those that are married, you ever had your spouse point something out to you and say, you know, you, you, you do this, it's not a good look, you shouldn't do that, and you're just completely bewildered, like what are you even talking about? Are you married to someone else? And then not, what, 10 minutes later, you're doing it or saying it, and your wife says, there, see that, and you just... Okay, none of you husbands, just me, all right? I'll, I'll own this one. I'll take one for the team. But we just don't know ourselves as well as we presume to. We don't have the vantage point that we need. And we suffer from immense bias. We don't know ourselves even as well as we suspect that we do. And even as someone saved, our knowledge of this salvation is not based on the knower but the known. I love that we sung that hymn today. He will hold us fast. The, the Puritans were known for constantly saying, it's not our hold of Christ that saves us, it's his hold of us. And it's not until glory that we shall know, even as we are known. Paul says this, doesn't he, to the Corinthians. 1 Corinthians thirteen twelve says, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, Paul says, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. And so here is... Here's the essence of this, and this is what I believe Paul is driving at. And what is our, our major application this afternoon? If you're striving to get a sense of your true savedness, your, your convertedness, your, your salvation, you should be looking to Christ, not looking at self, not isolating your focus on who you are or what you do or how you may or may not have changed, but to look to Christ. Of course, the apostle 
takes pains to make this very clear in Hebrews 12 verse 2. You know this passage well. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. The Scottish Presbyterian minister, 1813 to 1843, his name's Robert Murray Machane. Some of you know him. A lot of you know him only because his, his Bible reading plan is very popular, the Murray Machane reading plan. But he said this once. He said, for every look at self, take 10 looks at Christ. Live near to Jesus and all things will appear little to you in comparison with eternal reality. Here is the challenge that we often find ourselves is we is we want to feel saved. We want to have a, a concrete assurance of our conversion. But often what that desire provokes in us is inward navel gazing. It, it provokes in us a, an introspection which isn't necessarily healthy and certainly can be unhelpful. And this is where Paul takes us to look to Jesus. So just for a few moments this afternoon... That's what we're going to do. We're going to use this passage as our tour guide, if you will, to analyze all of this preciousness and, and preeminence and particularly the peculiarity of Christ. How is he unique and how is his unique personage been given by God for our salvation? So verse 15 says, he's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. You, you couldn't frame a better sentence than that that describes perfectly the precise nature of God's eternal Son, Jesus Christ. It's almost certainly, most historians and uh, commentators agree, it's almost certainly a, a line from an early Christian hymn, this declaration that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He is the image. Now, image, the word image in the first century didn't carry the baggage of what it often does today. Like we see people's lives are governed today by their, their, their relationship to images, right? Instagram and social media and, and, and filters and, and frames and all sorts of weird things are being done to images. I remember when I was living in the US in upstate New York and the city I lived in was Rochester. And Rochester's known for a few different companies. Xerox was one of them. Um, there's a couple others I'm blanking. Western Union came out of Rochester. But no company had quite the economic boon for that city as the home of, does anybody know? Probably not. Kodak. It's the home of Kodak. That's where Kodak himself grew up and developed the first ideas. In fact, some of you may or may not know this. The first, the, the first digital camera ever invented was by Kodak. It feels like they missed an opportunity there somewhere uh, along the line. But we think about images, how, how we've tried to think about the way images function, the way we capture reality, the way that we reflect upon reality, and the way that we revisit images. But in the first century, the word image did not quite suffer from the modern baggage. It meant mirror-like representation, exact reflection, precise. So when the invisible God looks into a mirror, the exact image manifested back is the eternal Son of God. That's the imagery that Paul is trying to drive home for us to reflect upon. That when the Father, if he were, he's invisible, so we're using kind of anthropomorphic language, it's like a $5 technical theological word. We use anthropomorphic language. If the Father was to stare into a mirror, the very perfect image reflected back would be the eternal Son. 
That's the second person of the triune Godhead who has created the world, who sustains the world, and brings about redemption to those who he has foreknown, elected, and predestined. So Paul says that Jesus, the Son, is the image of the invisible God, perfect, exact representation, and also he is the begotten of God. That's what Paul says. He's the, he's the, the prototokos. It's the Greek word for the firstborn. He is the firstborn of God, of all creation. And yet, he is God. This Son of God is truly God. Remember Paul's prayer for the Colossians? Paul's prayer for the Colossians is that they would abound and expand in knowledge. And so sometimes we have to come to church and we have to think hard things, technical things, true things about God so that we can be stretched and challenged and we can grow. And so what that means is this second person of the Trinity is eternally begotten of the Father, the entire Bible goes to great pains and great lengths to communicate this distinction of relation in the Godhead. The Father begets, the Son is begotten, the Spirit proceeds all in eternity past, all in eternity present, all in eternity future. Not made, not created. This Son, Jesus, is not brought into existence. The Father is infinite, the Son is infinite because He is the image and the exact representation of God. Now, this is maybe comes across quite convoluted, maybe quite challenging. When we think about the person of Jesus, what makes him unique is he unites two natures in one person. He's not like you and I. We are human. I'm going to look out at our audience and make that presumption, right? We are human. That's almost certainly true. Uh, no, not almost. That just is certainly true. But Jesus is not just truly human. He's also truly God. This is what our creeds call us to confess. This is what the Bible, the New Testament particularly, seeks to constantly communicate to us. The Father begets a Son in eternity. And from that Son is born Christ the Lord in time and space of the Virgin. To live under the law, perfectly satisfy the demands of the law, and yet die upon the cross to redeem sinners like us. What Paul tells us, the Father is infinite. Because the Son is the exact imprint, because the Son is the exact image of the invisible God, the Son is infinite. He is both infinite and eternally begotten. This is where human minds kind of, you feel like your mind starts to kind of bend a little bit at this point. Like, like how, are we, how are we understanding this? How are we comprehending this? How is this making Sense, but the true nature of God's revelation of Himself does not have to make sense to you. I, I, I remember many years ago, this is a bit trite, but I, I digress to tell this quite a silly story. But I remember years ago, there was, um, there was a, an evangelist for one of those you know, big pseudo Christian cults. I won't name the one, it doesn't matter which one it was. And he came around to my house to do a, a Bible study, right? But really, it was just to kind of propagate his propagandized theology. And he said, I don't believe in the Trinity. And I said, well, then you don't believe in the God of the Bible. That's it. Full stop. That's the end of the discussion. And he said, no, no. He said, my problem is when I think about the doctrine of the Trinity and the nature of, of God as it's presented in the Trinity, is it's, I don't understand it. And I just thought to myself, that cannot possibly be his ace in the deck, right? It can't be that I don't understand God, so it doesn't exist. 
As he was, I mean, already like you can, you can see the comedy of that, right? But he's sitting there and he had his iPhone right there on the, on the, on the uh, coffee table. And I said to him, okay, let's not talk about God for a second. Let me try another experiment. If I got your iPhone and I was an iPhone technician and I cracked it open, pulled it apart, every piece came apart and I spread it across the table and I said, reassemble it. You'd probably say, I don't know how. I don't understand the inner workings of an iPhone. Therefore, it doesn't exist. Is that that how we're doing theology now? And then I said to this sincere, well-meaning young man, surely you don't presume to approach the God who is infinite or glorious, omnipotent, omniscient, and say, unless I can comprehend you, you don't exist. I said, friend, you don't even fully understand yourself. We can't start at that place of saying, God, you have to be comprehensible or I'm going to dismiss you. Yeah, the Trinity is complex, yes. It's complex because you know what? It reflects a God who is beyond our ability to fully appreciate and understand. And yet the New Testament gives us all of these wonderful truths and realities. That God is not singular in person. God is triune. And how those, how those persons interact and exist and function and how they relate to creation and redemption are glorious truths that God has revealed. Far be it from us to say, Lord God, this is beyond my ability to digest. After all, it's a Sunday afternoon. I'm full of lunch and I'm quite tired. Lord God, I don't really want to have to study these hard things. For that which God has taken pains to reveal, his servants and children should take pains to at least try and understand. Begotten of the Father. So the Bible says of this second person of the Trinity, the one that we often call Jesus because that was his birth name when he comes into our world. When God interacts with finite entities, there's always a timestamp. You remember those old, those old cameras used to always give a timestamp? Remember those? Like video cameras and, and photos used to have like a timestamp. How useful was that to some degree? When God, the infinite God, invades time and space, there's always some, some timestamp. There are limitations that consist with finiteness. We, we exist in a time-space continuum. I'm not here and at the same time somewhere else. I, I am not here right now and at the same time at a different timestamp. I am fully here. All of my existence is exhausted in this moment. But when God interacts with something infinite, there's no timestamp. There's no point in time. There's no limitation. When infinite persons are not constrained by time-space continuum, limitations and punctuations in time don't exist. This is why this is why Christians have confessed for literally centuries that Jesus is begotten before all ages, eternally begotten of the Father. The begottenness of the Son is never beginning, never ending, never punctuated by time. It's eternal in every sense of the word. Now, I've made reference already several times to the Creed of Nicaea, AD 325. I think I want to read a few lines from that. It says, We confess belief in the one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence as the Father. All of this is contained in these Simple words that Paul offers in Colossians 1. That, that he, is the, he is the very image of an invisible God and yet he's also the firstborn. 
It's a puzzle that only Jesus is the precise piece. It's a riddle that only Christ is the perfect solution. And we're told in verse 15 of our key text today that Christ is the prototokos, that's firstborn, of all creation. And cults have swooped in upon that phrase firstborn. I'm sure if you've been bailed up at your door on a Saturday morning, some well-dressed young men with name tags and, and, and ties, poorly tied, usually it's the case, uh, cycled in on your lawn, they normally want to zo- zoom in on this word if they can, firstborn. And, and they want to tell you that that has to mean, it has to mean that there was a time when he didn't exist because he had to be born. And when he's born, then prior to that moment of birth, his existence wasn't a reality. It's a vain and pathetic attempt to limit God, the Son, the second person of the Trinity, to reduce his godless, to reduce his status of godness below what Scripture tells. They say something like this. Tell me if you maybe have heard this phrase. He must be born if he's to be the firstborn, and if he's born and prior to the birth, he kind of existed. Now, we already know the Scriptures speak about the begottenness of the Son, And yet the word prototokos isn't speaking about birth. It may seem like that, but it speaks of preeminence. We'll look at this a little more in just a moment. It's speaking of the role of Christ in creation. What do we read about Christ throughout the New Testament? We read that that all things came into being through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. That's John 1. We read in Hebrews that he sustains the natural world by the word of his power. This is the the God man. This is Christ, pre-incarnate, incarnate, incarnate, risen, ascended forever in glory. Colossians 1, 16 and 17, our very next verses in our sequence of reading this afternoon says, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. What a wonderful phrase, hold together. John 1, 1, uh, we already said this, but I'll read John 1, 1 to 3, the preceding verses. This is how the Holy Spirit inspired the Apostle John to reflect upon this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Kai theos, ein hot logos, and God was the Word. Is literally the Greek rendering. Verse 2, he was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. Paul's emphasis here is not just that there's this, there's this, there's this triune God that exists in glory, and, and the Father is the Father is on the field, right? And the Father's playing the game, and he's interact, interacting with creation. And then at one point, he kind of jumps out and says, "All right, son, jump into the game." Like the son's just benched right until his moment arrives. That's not what Paul's arguing. In fact, quite the opposite. Sometimes in Christian theology, we kind of compartmentalize this in somewhat unhealthy ways. We, we think about the Father was, was the God in the Old Testament, and then there's the four gospel accounts, and that's where Jesus kind of center stage and the spotlight hits him. And, and then once he's done, his, he's done his work and he ascends to heaven, then the Holy Spirit comes, and that's the rest of your New Testament, Acts 2, Revelation. That's not the way God sees the Bible. God sees the Bible as a perpetual triune activity, and yet at different times, there is focus drawn to one or other of the persons of God. 
Now, part of this is, I don't know how much time we have today, as I'm looking at my, um, my clock here. Part of the concern here is that proto-Gnosticism had begun to really spread throughout the churches of Colossae, and, and Paul was trying to interact with these and deal with these. The pre-incarnate Jesus, that means Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, prior to him getting the name Jesus and being born of the Virgin in Bethlehem, was the exact imprint of his Father, truly divine in every way. Creator of all things, whether thrones, what do we read, dominions, what else, rulers and authorities, powers, things that are material and immaterial. You don't have a third category. Exhaustively of everything that exists, you've got two categories. You've got either immaterial things or material things. That's it. Paul is exhausting human language to help you to understand that everything that is created has been created through Christ, for Christ and upheld by Christ. It's interesting, we get passing reference to this in, in John 5. In John 5, Jesus has one of those kind of very hostile interactions with the Jewish crowd. And as it had done so many times before, the, the interactions just kind of divulged into attempts of outright violence. We know the story when Jesus went to his hometown and he'd so enraged the, the community that they pushed him to the crest. Remember the brow of a hill? Remember that story? And in the Gospels, it reads so curious, doesn't it? It, it reads, the crowds were, were hopping mad with murderous intention. That's my editorial. And they push him to the crest of the hill. And then what does the Gospel author say? It wasn't his time, so he just walked through the crowd. You're like, I kind of want a bit more detail. Like, is this come some kind of Jedi mind trick? What is this? What is this? Like, they're ready to throw him off the hill. And he's like, wait, not my time better luck next time, he just walks away. This is one of those instances in John 15, and yet there's more going on here than what immediately meets the eye. In fact, in John 5, not John 15, I, I misspoke, John 5, 17, Jesus is quoted to saying this to the Jews. He says, my father is working until now, and I'm working. My father is working until now, and I'm working. What, what, what a bizarre phrase. And then verse 18, you read the response, right? It says, for this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because he was not only breaking the Sabbath, but he was calling God his own father and making himself equal with God. What's going on there? How has this erupted to this, this horrible point where these hearers of Christ are sharpening stones they're collecting around them to bludgeon Jesus to death? Because... The Jews had a very well-developed theology of Sabbath. We know that, right? They'd created all this infrastructure around the Sabbath. So if you were a, you were a tailor of clothes, you couldn't carry any more than so many needles in your pocket. And if, if you were a washerwoman, you're only allowed to do so much work on the day before the Sabbath in lead up and all these rigid rules. So when you read in your Bible a Sabbath day's journey, I used to do this many years ago. I used to think that meant just a day's journey. How many miles could you walk in a day? No, it means just a very few miles was all you were allowed to walk on the Sabbath. And so a Sabbath day's journey is New Testament talk for a very short distance. That's the point it's trying to make. And yet Jesus is constantly pushing against this religiosity of, of a kind of extra Sabbath requirements. And on this one day, it really come to a head. And the Jews had this, not just this theology around the extra commands for the Sabbath, they had that, but they built upon that because a, a debate arose some centuries before Jesus 
about whether God is taking a Sabbath on the Sabbath day. You read in creation that, that in six 24-hour days, God created the world. Amen? Just to be sure, six 24-hour days, God created the world, right? right? At least that's what God thinks. I don't care what science says. God has an opinion on the matter, and he's spoken very clearly and deliberately about this. And then it says on the seventh day, he rested from all of his work of creation. So the Jews had to wrestle with this, and they, they, they thought to themselves, what does it look like? Because for a God who creates ex nihilo from nothing, the material world and all that's contained therein, for God to speak that into existence... And the word of God is Christ. It's, it's Jesus. And, and the active power of creation is, is the spirit. Again, it's, it's a triune act. Well, what does it mean he rested? The, the Jews had to wrestle. Because if the created God, I should rephrase that. That was heresy. My apologies. Not the created God. The creating God. How difference one declension makes. Amen, right? We have to be careful when we're speaking about God. The creating God, if he stopped working... What would happen to his creation? Cease to exist. The Bible tells you not just that God brought about the material world, but that he upholds it. He sustains it. God is the active, inexhaustible power that keeps the material world being a material world. And the Jews understood this. And then they accused Jesus of working. And he says something that to them provoked them. But to you and I, maybe sometimes we read on by and we don't actually get what Jesus is saying. He says, my father is working until now and I'm working. He's making a statement of his full divinity. And that just like the father is actively upholding the material world, he, the son, all things are created for him and through him and by him. He... Let, me, let me paraphrase it if you'll allow me today to do that. He says to these detractors, as they're polishing stones ready to cave his head in, or at least they think they're going to do that, he's, he's basically saying, so you know, guys, I'm not the one at immediate risk of dying. It's you. If you have a problem with me not keeping Sabbath, if you'd like, I can stop working, but the moment I do that, the entire material world ceases to exist. Would you like that? Is that what you're asking for? Because I am the eternal son of almighty God, and I've created all things, and I am even right now sustaining the entire world. You want me to take Sabbath? I'm up for it, but it's going to end bad for you. They said, you are making yourself equal with God, and Jesus doesn't say, you've misunderstood. By his silence, he's saying, you've finally understood something. Me and the Father are equal, of course, in this instance. They don't kill him. His crucifixion is delayed for a while. Hebrews 1.3, we've made reference to this. We'll read it again. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. It's a different idea. In Colossians, it says it's an image, but in Hebrews, it calls it an imprint because the idea was that, was that ancient imperial stamp of wax. All leaders in the Roman world, and particularly Caesars and governors, had a, had a special signet ring. It means a signature ring. These days we, we scribble and pretend it's always consistent. It, it rarely is. Okay, again, my situation. But in the ancient world, you had a signet ring. And as you would write letters or edicts or imperial commands, you would, you would write them and codify them in a, official Roman ways. And then you would seal them by dripping wax on the seal and then pressing your signet down. That was your signature the exact imprint was precisely the same as the ring that pressed into the soft wax. 
That's what Jesus is called in Hebrews 1. Is the Father presses down and, and, and the Father begets. The Son comes in an eternal act of begottenness into existence. What does it then say? It says he's the exact imprint of the Father's nature, of God's nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Moving on, Colossians 1.18 says he's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. The preeminence of Christ, it's unquestionable in creation and redemption. He is prototokos. We already looked at that word in the Greek. It means firstborn, preeminent. He is the original creation, not as in he didn't exist. He's always existed, but he is the first of the new creation. It's a, it's a strange way to speak. You'll see in our text this afternoon that Paul uses this phrase twice. He says in the first verse, verse 15, that he's the firstborn of all creation. He's the preeminent one in all that's created. And then it says in verse 18, he's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. It's an interesting phrase. He's the head of the body, that is the church, the firstborn from the... What I think Paul is guiding us to think about is the nature of natural birth. My wife and I, we have, we have four children. We're so thankful to God for our four children. And I was there at all four births of the four children. I'm not looking for a medal for that, right? But it was, it was challenging, right? Those fathers know that, gee, the wives complain, but we go through. I'm kidding. I'm t don't tell my wife I said that. She will, she will murder me. She gets very, very violent when she's delivering a child, scratching, biting, clawing, twisting, nearly broke my fingers. She, of course, never remembers it afterward. What I learned when our four children were born is that babies are supposed to arrive Head first, right? That's not a scientific discovery. I'm just saying what I learned. Our four children, for some reason, were under the impression they were auditioning for the new role of Superman because they all came out arm first next to their head. And may God continue to bless my wife with good health because they certainly did a number on her. This is what Paul is referring to. Is that Jesus is the preeminent of all creation. And then as the head of the church, this, this, this new glorious institution that God is bringing about in the new covenant, the firstborn from the dead, the firstborn from the dead is Christ. He goes down into death through his crucifixion and his burial and he comes up as the head of the church. And in and with him, united to his body by faith, we are joined with him by faith. We come with him in conquering over death and sin and the world. There's something of that idea in Paul's language. Jesus, the first fruits of the new creation, he breaks down all barriers between race, culture, class, and he creates in himself the new man. Ephesians says he kills the hostility that previously existed. We'll move on and we close our discussion today. Wish we could say so much more. There is so much more embedded in this glorious Christological passage. What's the application? Like, what, what, is, what has all of this been? We just come together on a Sunday afternoon and a guy gets up and rambles on about all these really technical, highfalutin theological ideas. Is there a point? What is Paul aiming at here? He's telling us there's always a real application to right theology. 
as glorious and supreme and preeminent as Christ is, that is how secure your salvation is. What Paul wants to stress and the Holy Spirit through Paul's letter to us today is the champion of your glorious redemption is indomitable. He's all-powerful. He reigns as truly God of truly God. It's not your hold of Christ that saves you. It's his hold of you. Do you think his hold is weakening? Do you think his grip is loosening? It's not and cannot. For he is all glorious and omnipotent because he is truly God. The measure of Christ's inexhaustible power and greatness is the same measure of the security of your salvation. As almighty as Jesus is, is as strong as your salvation is. The weakest faith, the smallest, most childlike, what we would say is incipient faith, lays hold of the same all-conquering Savior as the strongest faith. As high as the authority of Jesus is, it proves that your salvation can never be countermanded by a lesser authority. Even if that lesser authority is a church or a pastor or a priest or whatever it may be. Christ, we know, is the one mediator between God and man. And Christ, as the mediator, does not need a mediator. It's what constantly provokes me about more traditional high forms of so-called these claim to be Christianity. Is they want Jesus to have a mediator. Can't come to Jesus. Got to come through the priests through the sacrament, through the rituals, through the ordinances. Why would Jesus need a mediator if he has been given by God to be the one mediator between God and man? Why does he need a mediator? Why are we presuming such a weakness on the part of Christ if we don't hold fast to the confession of the New Testament that he has come in our form, in our flesh, reflecting our nature to save us? In him all things hold together. All things hold together. If he can't hold together your salvation, your heavenly citizenship, your eternal hope, then this entire material world will also instantly cease to exist. Your salvation is as sure right now as the chair you're sitting on, the air you're breathing, the sunlight streaming in through the windows. That's as sure as your salvation is because they are held together by the same omnipotent hand. Those that have an ear to hear, Hear the words of Christ. The preeminence of Christ is the same certain preeminence of the gospel of salvation. It is the power of God unto salvation to all who believe. So what is this belief? I was reading recently some of the writings of the famous evangelist D.L. Moody, a great friend of Charles Spurgeon and other soul winners of the 1800s. I came across this statement of faith in D.L. Moody. I thought, that's so good. That's so consistent with the New Testament, but so helpful for people like me who do go through those periods of dark night of the soul experiences. D.L. Moody said this. He said, real, true faith is man's weakness leaning on God's strength. That's what saving faith is. Saving faith is getting to the end of your rope and knowing it and casting all your hope on Christ. Saving faith is not locating any hope inside you. You should have already come to the end of that and realized there's nothing in you that commends you to God except this one fact that he loved you with an eternal love. The great reformed theologians would often say this. They would say, the greatest evidence that God will never stop to love you is this, he never began. It is 
a timeless, eternal love. So look to Him and live. Look unto Jesus and live. Those of us here today that are believers, we don't stop looking and graduate beyond the gospel. We daily take our comfort in the truth of Christ. And those today that are yet to believe in Christ for salvation, this is your day. This is your day of salvation to look to Jesus and live. You don't have to be conversant, comprehending all of the things that we've spoke about. This is a, this is a deep passage of Scripture. We freely admit that. But you have to realize that in and of yourself dwells no good thing. And in Christ is all, all that God requires of you. If you go to Christ, you will be saved, for He never, ever, ever turns away those that humbly come to Him in faith to receive salvation.